Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's start off with uh, this one from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 24th, 2022. More anti-Semitic hate scene in L.A. Demonstrators give Nazi salutes behind a 405 freeway banner endorsing remarks made by Kanye West. By Kevin Rector. Kanye West's weeks-long spite of anti-Semitic comments drew a well-known hate group to Los Angeles over the weekend for a demonstration of support on a 405 freeway overpass, raising alarms from local officials and residents that the rapper's rhetoric was inspiring more public bigotry. West, also known as Ye, has attracted widespread criticism and was locked out of his Instagram and Twitter accounts in recent weeks for comments online and in TV interviews espousing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that have spurred hate and violence against Jewish people in the past, including that they have outsized power and influence in the media. In addition to freezing his social media accounts, West comments have drawn public demands that he lose lucrative endorsements and further threatened his waning celebrity cachet. On Saturday, demonstrators gave Nazi salutes as they stood behind a large overpass banner that read, Kanye is right about the Jews, according to images collected by anti-discrimination organizations and Jewish residents appalled by the group's message. It's not just words, said Sam Yebri, a lawyer and former Anti-Defamation League board member who lives in Westwood and took to Twitter to denounce the event. There is clearly a connection to white supremacy and neo-Nazi movements. Responding to the overpass demonstration, Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon said Sunday on Twitter that anti-Semitism cannot be tolerated and that he stands with the Jewish community. We cannot tolerate the hashtag anti-Semitism that was on full display on LA Freeway, Gascon wrote. Hashtag white supremacy is a societal cancer that must be excised. This message is dangerous and cannot be normalized. Yebri said the demonstration was just one of many anti-Semitic incidents in the city in recent weeks. Residents have also found flyers at their homes and on their cars spewing racist and otherwise bigoted stereotypes and conspiracy theories about Jewish and LGBTQ people, he said. Yebri said he recently found a flyer at his home casting the COVID-19 pandemic and response as part of a Jewish agenda. He said flyers found across the city have espoused the well-worn anti-Semitic idea that Jewish people somehow exert outsized influence over the media. Friends flagged other flyers found in L.A. neighborhoods that alleged both the Biden administration and the LGBTQ rights movement are controlled by Jewish people, he said. This is an issue that we need more attention and more action on, said Yebri, who is running for the L.A. City Council, sent the seat of outgoing 5th District Council member Paul Koretz. People are terrified and feel abandoned by our leaders who are neither speaking up nor doing anything about this increase in anti-Semitism. The Los Angeles and Beverly Hills Police Department said Sunday that they were investigating the recent distribution of anti-Semitic fires. In Beverly Hills, police said they were investigating the overnight distribution of about 25 flyers blaming gun control measures on Jewish people. LAPD Chief Michael Moore said the department's major crimes division was aggressively investigating a series of flyer drops that appeared to be 
connected to those in Beverly Hills. Investigators have located video of a vehicle they believe was involved, he said, and will continue to pursue every avenue to identify and prosecute individuals whenever possible involved in these anti-Semitic attacks. West has been widely criticized for his anti-Semitic remarks, including one in which he said he was going to go death come three on Jewish people. He made further anti-Semitic remarks in an interview with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. West, who is black, and faced criticism as well for wearing a White Lives Matter shirt to his YZY runway show during a Paris Fashion Week. The controversy around him gained additional momentum when it was reported that he was buying the right-wing social media company Parier. P-A-R-I-E-R. Yepri said neither anti-Semitism nor the ideas espoused in the flyers found near L.A. are new. But he nonetheless uh, drew a connection between the recent proliferation and West's rhetoric. Kanye's remarks give an added, added air and momentum to the hate that previously was limited to the dark corners of the internet, Yebri said. Now it's popping up in neighborhoods, at people's homes, and throughout Los Angeles. Several of the fires Yebri and his friends in the neighborhood have collected, uh, re- uh, reviewed by the Times, make references to the group Goyim Defense League, which has been identified as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, and the organization Stop Anti-Semitism. Both the Anti-Defamation League and Stop Anti-Semitism attributed the overpass demonstration to the Goyim Defense League, which has roots in California and has repeatedly staged anti-Semitic demonstrations in L.A. and neighboring cities such as Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. The accused, one of the group's leaders, John Menadio II of the Northern California city of Petaluma, of leading the demonstration and at one point yelling at a California Highway Patrol officer who had responded to the scene. Menadio could not be reached for comment Sunday. The CHP did not immediately respond to a request for comment on its response to the demonstration, including whether any arrests were made. Stop Anti-Semitism said the demonstration represented a merger, merging of West's horrific anti-Semitic outbursts and the Goyam Defense League's track record of distributing anti-Semitic materials in the region. Um, white supremacists capitalizing on Ye's ongoing anti-Semitic tantrums is in another example of how extremists find a com- commonality in the hatred of Jews, said Lior Rez, executive director of Stop Anti-Semitism. While the atrocious and bigoted behavior of the GDL may be protected by the First Amendment, this is clearly a targeted harassment campaign against the Jewish people. Rez called on elected officials and law enforcement to find a way to put an end to these antics before someone gets hurt. Gren Siegel, vice president of the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism, said the overpass demonstration was the latest example of how extremists across the ideological spectrum have embraced West rhetoric. He said the Goyan Defense League had recently taken the me- to the messaging platform Telegram to discuss capitalizing on West's comments with yet more flyers, this time blaming Jewish people for the slave trade. Siegel said West's most recent rhetoric has helped advance the spread of long-standing hateful and false narratives shared by extremist groups. West responded to the DEATHCON tweet, which has since been deleted, 
telling interviewer Pierce Morgan that he apologized to people hurt by the by the comment, but that he didn't regret making it. And that was More Anti-Semitic Hate Seen in L.A. by Kevin Rector from the California from the Los Angeles Times of the uh, for Monday, October 24th, 2022. Here's a follow-up story. Uh, from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 26, 2022, Kanye Fallout hits Holocaust Museum in L.A. Institution says it has faced anti-Semitic hate after extending an invitation <clears throat> for a tour by Melissa Hernandez. Holocaust Museum L.A. said it has been the target of anti-Semitic attacks after Kanye West rejected an invitation for a private tour. The museum extended the invitation to West, who goes by Ye, October 11th via a post to Instagram stories following the rapper's inflammatory remarks about the Jewish community. Words matter and have consequences, Ye, read the post, of which BET.com grabbed a screenshot. We urge you to come visit us at Holocaust Museum LA to understand just how words can incite horrific violence and genocides. The Holocaust started with only words that sadly begat stereotypes, racial and religious tropes, and blaming others, and led to the murder of six million Jews. West publicly rejected the offer October 15 during an episode of the rap podcast Drink Champs and said Planned Parenthood is our black people's Holocaust museum. Since extending the public invitation, Holocaust Museum LA has received a tremendous amount of social media messages and comments, some filled with hate, threats, and vitriol, it said October 13 in a series of tweets. Following West's tirade of hate speech, multiple businesses have severed ties with him, including talent agency CAA, fashion powerhouse uh, Balachka, and German sportswear company Adidas. But the rapper's comments have emboldened others to disseminate anti-Semitic remarks. In recent weeks, residents across Los Angeles have found flyers at their homes and on cars sprouting stereotypes and conspiracy theories about Jewish people. The, this weekend, a prominent hate group showed support for West rhetoric with a demonstration on a 405 freeway, freeway overpass. Members gave Nazi salutes as they stood in, by a banner saying Kanye is right about the Jews. Mayor Eric Garcetti later condemned the act in a tweet. There's no place for discrimination or prejudice in Los Angeles, and we will never back down from the fight to expose and eliminate it. That was Kanye Fallout Hits Holocaust Museum LA by Melissa Hernandez from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, October 26, 2022. Alright, and now let's go on to this one. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 25th, 2022, Weinstein begins L.A. trial on sex assault charges. Ex-Hollywood mogul convicted in New York now faces 11 other counts in attacks in 2004 to 2013 by James Queeley. The worlds of politics and Hollywood collided Monday in a Los Angeles courtroom as Harvey Weinstein's trial on rape, ch rape charges finally began in the city where he once held sway as a film industry film kingmaker. During a 90-minute opening statement, Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Paul Thompson read quotes from the eight women expected to say Weinstein assaulted them, describing how they were terrified of his massive size advantage and the enormous influence he wielded over their futures as actors and models. I was scared 
that if I didn't play nice, something could happen in the room or out of the room because of his uh, power in the industry, one woman said, according to Thompson. Thompson also provided the most detailed account yet of Weinstein's alleged rape of Jennifer Siebel Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom's wife, who worked as an actor in the early 2000s. He showed jurors photos of Siebel Newsom and the governor to uh, contrast her prominent role today in California politics to the powerful actor trying to make her way in Hollywood that he said she was trying at the time of the alleged assault in a Beverly Hills hotel room. Weinstein, 70, had been indicted on 11 counts of rape, forcible oral uh, copulation, and sexual battery in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, charges that stem from alleged assaults on women between 2004 and 2013. If convicted, Weinstein faces a de facto life sentence in California. He is serving a 23-year prison sentence after being convicted in 2020 in New York of other rapes and assaults. At the Los Angeles trial, which is expected to last several weeks, the woman who, uh, whose allegations form the basis and of the charges against Weinstein will testify as Jane Doe's. Another group of women who are expected to testify about prior bad acts will be identified in court by their first name and last initial. While the Times typically does not name victims of sexual, alleged sexual uh, violence, Siebel Newsom had, and some of the women testifying against Weinstein have accused him publicly. More than 80 women uh, have claimed Weinstein sexually abused them since 2017 when the investigations by the New York Times and the New Yorker brought the uh, alleged assaults into the public eye and made Weinstein a central antagonist of the hashtag MeToo movement. He has denied all wrongdoing. The hashtag MeToo movement featured prominently in the opening argument of the defense attorney Mark Worksman, who described the movement as an asteroid that struck Earth and changed the landscape of acceptable behavior. Worksman said that Weinstein had engaged in cast, casting couch acts before the hashtag MeToo movement became a household term and that many of the women accusing him of wrongdoing had used sex as a commodity to get things from Weinstein. Worksman claimed that the two Jane Doe's in the Los Angeles trial fabricated their allegations and that two others, including Siebel Newsom, had transactional sex with the mogul. The accusers in this case, uh, women who willingly played the game by the rules that applied back then, they will come into this courtroom now with their lawyers in tow and claim they were raped and sexually assaulted, Worksman said. They have to lie to themselves to make what they did consensually back then seem like it was forced upon them. According to courtroom records, Siebel Newsom will testify that Weinstein assaulted her sometime between September 2004 and 2005. She had previously described the assault in a 2017 Huffington Post essay. When the two met at a Beverly Hills hotel, Weinstein said he wanted to discuss Siebel Newsom's career. And when the Merrimax co-founders showed up at the meeting with several assistants, she believed them. But the others quickly left, and Siebel Newsom found herself alone with Weinstein, Thompson said. They spoke for a while about business, but then Weinstein disappeared to the bathroom and asked her to follow. Weinstein was in a bathrobe and made a sexual overture that Siebel Newsom quickly declined. Thompson said Weinstein then began to talk about top-flight actresses whose careers he had launched in a tone that moved 
uh, from pleading to aggressive uh, demanding from the that moved from pleading to aggressive to demanding Thompson said then once he shoved her onto a bed she couldn't get any words up because of her fear said Thompson who alleged Weinstein forced himself on Siebel Newsom orally before raping her Thompson told jurors that many of the accusers maintained relationships with Weinstein after the alleged attacks because of his influence in Hollywood and on the political stage. At one point, Thompson flashed a picture of Weinstein laughing alongside Hillary Rodham Clinton and noted he had, he had pulled with presidential contenders. Many of the women feared Weinstein could crush their careers if they reported what he had done to them. Worksmen seized on those communications, displaying emails in which one accuser said she had enjoyed seeing Weinstein years after an alleged assault. He also attacked Siebel Newsom for soliciting political donations from Weinstein, a long-time fundraiser for National Democrats, and for bringing her husband, then San Francisco mayor, to a party with the mogul in 2007. She brought her husband to meet and party with the man who raped her. Who does that? Worksman asked. Later, Worksman said that if Siebel Newsom had not risen to political prominence, she would be just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. The comment drew a quick condemnation from the Newsom camp. Convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein and his enablers are once again reporting to their despicable, desperate, dishonest attack the victim playbook, said Siebel Newsom's civil, civil attorney Elizabeth Fegan. The defense is callously engaging in misogynistic name-calling and victim-shaming, but survivors will not be deterred and Weinstein should be found guilty once again. It is unclear what role, if any, the governor will play in the trial. He and his wife began dating after the alleged assault in 2006, but Weinstein's defense team asked potential jurors last week about uh, their feelings on, on the governor. Weinstein's attorney also uh, attorneys also plan to cross-examine Siebel Newsom about how she sought political donations from Weinstein. The actor and director Mel Gibson is also expected to testify at the trial. Prosecutors say a woman identified as Jane Doe No. 3, who alleges Weinstein abused her in May 2010, described the assault to Gibson while giving the actor a massage. Thompson said Monday that the victim is a professional masseuse whose clients include celebrities and athletes. But after giving Weinstein a massage in a hotel suite, he allegedly followed her into the bathroom, groped her breast, and masturbated. When the women pro uh, protested, Weinstein responded it was completely normal. He'd done it with so many people, according to Thompson. Weinstein offered a book deal to Jane Doe No. 3 after the assault, according to Thompson, who said she uh, agreed to future consensual encounters with the mogul as a result. At one point, Thompson said, a future employer of Jane Doe No. 3 asked her to help him arrange a meeting with Weinstein. It's going to cost you, Weinstein said, and later ordered Jane Doe No. 3 to watch him masturbate, according to Thompson. Prosecutors also planned to call Ambra but Batlana Gutierrez, a Filipina-Italian model whose accusations against Weinstein in 2015 led to his arrest by New York City police and played a critical role in a New Yorker article that, in part, sparked Weinstein's downfall. Manhattan prosecutors ultimately did not charge Weinstein for the alleged assault. Batlana Gutierrez 
will, testif uh, will testify that in 2015, Weinstein allegedly groped her during a meeting to discuss her career at the New York City offices of his eponymous company. While the 11 criminal counts against Weinstein were based on the allegations of five women, Thompson made no mention to jurors of Jane Doe No. 5 on Monday, raising the prospect that she had decided not to testify. Four of the 11 counts against Weinstein stem from allegations made by Jane Doe No. 5 court records show. Tiffany Blackwell, a spokesman for the district attorney's office, said no charges have been dropped as of Monday but declined to explain why Jane Doe No. 5 was not mentioned during the hearing. The woman's attorney, Gloria Albert, referred all questions to prosecutors. Jane Doe No. 1, an Italian model who previously spoke to the Times on condition of anonymity, was the first victim to, to take the stand Monday. She has accused Weinstein of barging into her Beverly Hills hotel room after a 2013 film festival and assaulting her. In her previous interview with the Times, the woman accused, accused Weinstein of bragging about his influence in the film industry while demanding sexual favors. She begged him to leave and showed him pictures of her children, but Weinstein did not relent, she said. He grabbed me by the hair and forced me to do something I did not want to do, she told the Times in 2017. He then dragged me to the bathroom and forcibly raped me. On Monday, the woman could be seen taking big, deep breaths and bailing her uh, and balling her, ha her hands into fists as she walked into the courtroom to face Weinstein. After an hour of testimony, Thompson asked her to recount the assault, but she collapsed into tears after saying she was crying and choking during the attack, causing the Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Lisa Lynch to end proceedings for the day. That was Weinstein Begins L.A. Trial on Sex Assault Charges by James Queeley. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. Okay, now let's go to this opinion article from the uh, opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. Calling out anti-Semitism. Hateful acts must be roundly and immediately denounced so they never become normalized. By Dr. Patrick Sunshion, Executive Chairman. Anti-Semitic flyers began appearing on West Side doorsteps in the dark night of last year, then again in April and August. Some of the ones showed up in Pasadena earlier this month at the start of Yom Kippur. More hate-filled pamphlets appeared last weekend on the West Side and in Beverly Hills. Corey Solomon, the president of the Brentwood Glen Association, got the first of several emails from neighbors at 7.06 a.m. Sunday about a flyer proclaiming Every single aspect of the COVID agenda is Jewish. A ring video showed a car driving by after 1 a.m. with someone tossing flies and plastic bags onto doorsteps. Over the last few months, Solomon has collected a folder full of flyers with varying takes on the same hateful anti-Semitic theme to show police and other community leaders. It's frightening and intimidating. She and her husband have a mezuzah the encased parchment scroll of Torah verses affixed to the doorway of a Jewish home. She wondered, should she take it down? She kept it up. But that isn't all of it. For the last few weeks, the rapper Ye, once known as Kanye West, has been going on anti-Semitic rants online and on Fox News on Tucker Carlson's show. West threatened to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people on Twitter, according to the Associated Press. It's not surprising that such hatred 
from a celebrity has inspired others. On Saturday, a bridge over the 405 freeway near a historically black community, about half a dozen people unfurled huge banners, one of which said Kanye is right about the Jews and gave a Nazi salute, an appalling spectacle once unimaginable in Los Angeles. Though these hateful acts weren't physically violent, they must be roundly and immediately denounced so they never become normalized. They've already been called out in the entertainment industry where that talent agency CAA has cut its ties to Ye. A company that had been planning to distribute a documentary on Ye has decided not to proceed. He has been frozen out of Twitter and Instagram. A Los Angeles Police Department spokesman said the flyers were being aggressively investigated by the Major Crimes Division. Jeffrey Abrams, the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles, is urging people to tell Adidas to stop its dealings with Ye. Law enforcement is limited in what it can do, says Abrams. It's imperative, he says, that people sound a clarion call to anti that anti-Semitism, this type of racism is impermissible and unforgivable. Yes, even in this liberal city, anti-Semitic markings on buildings and houses and schools have cropped up over the years before the current wave of flyers and banners. These were despicable acts and we should always be outraged by them no matter where or how often they happen. That was Calling Out Anti-Semitism by Dr. Patrick Soon-Chiong, Executive Chairman from the uh, Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. All right, now let's go to something from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times for the for, for Monday, October 24th, 2022. Rittenberg owes a lot to her family. Chaparral volleyball star has learned from special needs siblings by Luca Evans. He'd wandered from his post behind Temecula Chaparral's High's, Chaparral High's snack bar, and Maria Rittenberg would see her son sitting not in the homestands, but in the visiting bleachers, striking a conversation with anyone he could find. That's my sister over there, number 16, Sebastian Rittenberg would say, pointing to Chaparral stand-up Bella Rittenberg, who was committed to the University of Pennsylvania volley- volleyball program. You gotta cheer for her. Why would they cheer for Bella? They were visiting fans. Yet there was no stopping Sebastian, Bella's 22-year-old brother, with autism, who loves his sister more than anything. After their grandmother died when they were younger, there was Bella sitting with Sebastian and watching their favorite movie, Sleeping Beauty. When he fell, cutting his knee, there was Bella bringing him to their mother. When he was assaulted in a first-grade bathroom, Maria telling the story of a boy who punched and kicked and ripped Sebastian's shirt off, there was a young Bella asking, why? My yin, my yang, Sebastian said of Bella, my guardian angel. As she sh- shaped them, the, chap- uh, the chaparral senior and outstand outside hitter has been shaped by her family, little ducks, her mother said, who do everything t- uh, together. Bella has five siblings, four adopted, four with special needs. This season, before Chaparral was eliminated by San Juan Hills in a playoff match Thursday, her family was the biggest cheering section at most of their home at most home games dancing for their sister it'll be tough to leave them when she heads to Penn but they've given Bella a unique perspective on volleyball and life in general a lot of people would get mad at someone if they kept messing up or they weren't doing well Rittenberg said but I wouldn't we're all human I think I've learned that from my family there's Sebastian who lives out loud there's Harley the caring 28 year old 
who met Maria at 16 through a court-appointed special advocates program. There's the helpful 18-year-old Nathaniel, who has epilepsy. The friendly 17-year-old Natalie, who has an intellectual disability. The dawning 15-year-old Nadia, who has developmental delays. All three siblings adopted at once. It's an insta-family, Maria calls it. It's not always easy, but they've touched Chaparral's community, Coach J uh, Gail Johnson's favorite memories of the season, seeing them cheer. It's not that we're going to drink lemonade, Maria said, referencing the when life gives you lemons adage. We're going to make lemon uh, teenies, because if we're going to live this life, we're going to make it a party. Maria started Bella in volleyball to make sure her daughter didn't get lost in the shuffle while uh, taking care of Sebastian and welcoming four more siblings might, might have seemed hard. But Bella always wanted a bigger family. She's always been proud of having siblings with special needs, Maria said, orchestrating intricate dance productions with costumes and wigs and choreography when she was younger, tossing her arm around her brothers and sisters at school, waving to them at the bleachers. Now don't mistake her for a softie on the hardwood. Bella's a brute of an outside hitter as Sebastian described with a smile, unleashing a powerful hit, yet she brings a more caring attitude as a leader. Some people get so down on themselves when they make mistakes or when things go wrong. I feel just like she has this different perspective, Johnson said. On October 12, the team's senior game night against Temecula Great Oak, seniors and their families were welcomed onto the court. When it was Bella's turn, she and her family took a few steps only for Sebastian to strut out in front, waving his arms and blowing extravagant kisses to the crowd. Not a care in the world, and Bella wouldn't have it any other way. Sebastian is himself and her family is itself, and she loves it because it's made her who she is. Even though it's different, it's amazing, and I'm very lucky to have the parents and the siblings I do, Rittenberg said. That was Rittenberg owes a lot to her family by Luca Evans from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 24th, 2022. All right, here's another opinion article from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 28th, 2022. How I became a Halloween hero. The wonder I felt when I got full-sized candy while trick-or-treating as a kid has come to rule my recent adult life by Todd Goldberg. The first time my sister Linda and I went trick-or-treating without adult supervision, I was nine. It was 1980 and we lived in Walnut Creek in the Bay Area, which was like neighboring in a Steven Spielberg movie, a, na a neighborhood in a Steven Spielberg movie. Kids on bikes raced around under the streetlights, teens with feathered hair and puka shells committed, uh, committed light acts of vandalism. This time, this time of year, that meant everyone, everyone's pumpkins were kicked in or even filled with shaving cream by the end of Halloween night. Linda and I crossed the street and found ourselves on a cul-de-sac we'd never visited in previous years, when we were constrained by the strict margins of how far our mom wanted to walk. But how, could, but how we could venture farther with our pillowcases filled with pixie sticks and sweet tarts, the nickels and toothbrushes the Hutchinsons gave away, and the lie that is fun-sized candy bars. We walked up to a house with a single unsmashed pumpkin on the front porch, and I rang the doorbell. 
My memory might be slightly hazy since this sounds this sounds like a scene from Love American style, but a tallman with a congressman's haircut wearing a fitted turtleneck opened the door. Beside him was a woman in a perfect black dress. I'm sure either my sister or I said trick or treat, but that's lost on me now. All I can see is the deep wooden bowl the woman held, the kind that that usually uh, served large salads. It was filled with full-size candy bars. Take as many as you like, the man said. It's been pretty quiet over here. I'd heard talk about a house. I'd heard talk of a house that gave away full-size candy, but it never seemed like it could be real. And while it had been ingrained in my sister and me to be well-mannered, when you are a child presented with a bowl of with a bowl filled with a massive assortment of fun, full-size candy bars, upbringing means nothing. I grabbed two handfuls of Rocky Roads. Linda went for a fistful of Nestle Crunch Bars. The couple laughed. I figured they must be oil uh, barons. Who else could afford this kind of extravagance? Our own home was no frills, strictly tiny Hershey bars. Then I said the words that would come to rule my recent adult life, at least as it relates to Halloween. You're the full-size house, I said. You're really the full-size house. We are, the woman said. She she leaned in close. Now don't e tell everyone. We told every living soul we encountered. Where I live now is the exact opposite of the neighborhood where I grew up. A gated golf course community where a third of the homes are vacation or Airbnb rentals. A third could easily be occupied by people in witness protection and a third house families. The other 1%, judging from next door, are conspiracy theorists and coyote trackers. I don't know any of my neighbors personally. It's for that reason, I suspect, that for a long time I treated Halloween as a minor annoyance. But then a few years ago, I noticed that the rare infant in strollers that people in our Indio neighborhood were now about the age I, I was when I was allowed to roam on my own, I came to my wife, Wendy, with the question. How much would it cost us to be the full-size house? Thinking of that home in the cul-de-sac in Walnut Creek, the man's perfect hair, the woman's Audrey Hepburn dress, the amount I had in mind was solidly in three figures. Wendy said, 40 or 50 bucks if we account for shrinkage? We only get about 20 kids. The truth is that I'd always wanted to be that full-size house to recreate that moment of wonder I'd had. And yes, I wanted to become a legend of the neighborhood, remembered for my great benevolence and the plentiful, uh, the plentiful number of re real Reese's I handed out, not those ersatz gold-wrapped nuggets. But I also realized that the mere act of being the full-time, the full-size house had a larger social purpose. It was a protection plan. One day, those 20 adorable kids would become teenagers with friends, and teenagers with friends like to do things like egg houses and smash pumpkins. We've, invented, we've invested about $400 in full-size candy in the, in the years since. And while the neighborhood message boards are filled with stories of car windows getting broken, probably the work of bored teenagers, I could probably leave my car unlocked and running on Halloween night, and no one would take it. Because now, every year, as soon as the sun goes down on the big night, the kids show up at our house first, often a youngster being walked by an older sibling. Instead of getting 20 kids, we see a solid 50. 
and I listen through the door when they walk up, hoping to hear the older kids say, Be cool. They're the full-size house. That was How I Became a Halloween Hero by Todd Goldberg from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 28, 2022. Todd Goldberg is the author... Uh, most recently of The Low Desert Gangster Stories. He directs the Low Residency MFA program in creating writing and writing for the performing arts at UC Riverside. You can find him at Todd Goldberg. And now turning to some entertainment news, here's a little something from the parade section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 30th, 2022. Books We Love most influential pop songs according to Bob Dylan. One of the greatest songwriters of all time has written The Philosophy of Modern Song, November 1st, Simon & Schuster, a meditation from from Bob Dylan on 66 songs that change social landscapes in music. Music naggingly adheres itself in countless pinpoints of memory and emotion, writes the 81-year-old singer-songwriter. People can keep trying to turn music into a science, But in science, one and one will always be two. Music, like all art, tells us that one plus one in the best circumstances equals three. Here are a few of Dylan's picks of the most influential songs of our time. Go to parade.com slash Dylan for more by Dylan Dodson. Tutti Frutti, 1955, Little Richard. Written by Richard alongside Dorothy LaBostri, it's often recognized as a song that changed the world. With Richard's iconic, upbeat, blues boogie style, it arguably created rock and roll as we know it today. He took speaking in tongues right out of the canvas tent and put it onto the mainstream radio, writes Dylan. He says, saying that something is happening, the world is going to fall apart. Tutti Frutti is sounding the alarm. Volaire, Ne Bleu de Pinto de Bleu, 1958, Domenico Madugno. Bobby Rydell had a hit with this Italian tune, <clears throat> but it was Madugno's original version that won the first ever Grammy for Record of the Year and Song of the Year in 1959. Volare, it means let's fly away into the cello infinito, infinite sky. The entire world can disappear, but I'm in my own head. London Calling, 1979, The Clash. London Calling referenced the BBC's updates during World War II, but The Clash used the phrase to call out police brutality, global warming, the Cold War, and phony Beatlemania. Punk is the music of frustration and anger, but The Clash are different, Dylan says. Theirs is the music of desperation. A lot of their songs are overblown, overwritten, well-intentioned, but not this one. All hell is breaking loose, but the guy is still living by the river which gives him hope. That was Books We Love, The Most Influential Pop Songs According to Bob Dylan by Dylan Dodson from the Parade section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 30th, 2022. Again, you can go to parade.com Dylan for more of these songs. And speaking of great songs, let's get break out our rock and roll electric guitars and let's get our rock on because I've got something here from a place called rockpasta.com, the 20 songs that represent the career of Rush. Author unknown. Rush, one of Canada's finest progressive rock bands, 
Since the release of their eponymous debut album, they had been recognized for their musical mastery, for their complex compositions, and the electric theme of their lyrics that mainly speak of science fiction fantasy, the libertarian philosophy, humanitarian, social, sentimental, and environmental themes. Here's a look at the 20 songs that can represent the career of Rush. Leave that thing alone. Not everything is YYZ, another instrumental piece that Rush created when was Leave. Although it is much calmer, it represents the perfect harmony between the instruments the Canadian, that Canadians play. Headlong Flight, the theme song that opened the last studio album we saw from Rush, Headling Flight, was a pure rock liver hook straight to the face. Neil Pearl did not always need to be extravagant in his rhythms uh, to create music out of this world. Malignant Narcissism, in case of doubt, one more instrumental piece by Canadians. Malignant Narcissism is by far one of the band's busiest the most dynamic works and proved in every respect why Rush never needed controversy or Farfalla to succeed. Only the talent and brotherhood that always characterized them. The Necromancer. The song with more than 12 minutes in length is seen as the beginning of the musical evolution in which the band begins to move away from conventional heavy rock to start with progressive rock. A good start to know the entire repertoire that will prepare the following places. With long and dark lyrics, you will wrap yourself in a new dimension of sounds that will take you to the core of the greatest story told in everything that is that this song becomes. The Trees The Trees, Hemisphere's third and penultimate track, is undoubtedly another impeccable creation by the Canadian trio. Marked by fantastic and quite, unus quite unusual progressive nuances, its lyrics are enveloped by strong obscurity, always promoting over the years numerous debates about the possibilities of meanings. Certainly one of the most discussed works in the band's career. Fly by Night one of the shortest songs that will be seen in all places, since most of the songs are over seven minutes, but even so, one of the most famous songs of this band cannot be left behind. Small but complete, with changes, singles, and catchy and catchy riffs. Illustrated on an album with the same name as the song, second in his entire career. A theme that can make you feel good like most of the Rush songs, with great, a great performance of three members. Red Barchetta. Of the most commercialized work in all of the group's musical history, a new proposal is given of what is marked in the evolution of Rush, with the record of all previous albums together in a slow theme that is glowing in complex progressions that are giving the best essence of the virtuous qualities of each one of the members of the band. YYZ. For those who know the band, YYZ from the same album as Red Barchetta is found as an extremely striking experimental and progressive theme. The song that put them on the map and that everyone knows. Only geniuses like Rush could have reached the peak of popularity with a track that doesn't even have a voice. Pert only needed to dial five-fourths in a bell to start an unparall <coughs> unparalleled musical epic. The Spirit of Radio 
a simply complex theme with one of the most sympathetic and simple lyrics of their career seen from a little-known perspective of the group. It can be very confusing to listen to the whole song since it contains fast changes and basses fast, slow, synths that, uh, that, uh, and basses, slow, fa basses fast, slow synths that warp and then line up in seconds where the drums gleam along with the distorted guitar and gorgeous bass. Honestly, in my opinion, one of the band's happiest songs. By Tor and the Snow Dog And back to the album Fly By Night. By Tor and the Snow Dog is one of the best songs on that album. With more than 80 minutes of duration, the battery sounds powerful and thrilling, explosive that is changing to quite a, a point and nonchalant demonstrating the first roots that grew underground to publicize the new style of the band. Subdivisions Intertwined as the start of one of the band's most classic albums with such a striking and curious cover, Subdivisions may be one of the most different songs of the entire, their entire career, with more attachment to synthesizers than to guitar as opposed to that is listened to in all its other themes, apart from having one of the most prudent lyrics on youth themes with the theme of the boring life in the colonies and the subdivisions of their country of origin. Canada. But still, you can hear the great style that enlarged this trio. La Via Stragiato. Based on a dream by the guitarist of the band Alex Lifesong, that is why throughout the duration of the song you can hear incredible ramblings and riffs that are hallucinated only in the depths of the subconscious. With several of the best guitar performances with surprising changes, La Villa Stragiato sends you to a new world that if you know all the parts in which the song is recorded, you realize the great story is told without having, having to say something only with the wonders of music. The Fountain of Lamneth This song could be the most disputed for several other long rush themes such as Cygnus X1 Book 1, The Voyage, The Camera Eye, and Natural Science of which I can mention them just as powerful projects, but the Fountain of Lam Lamneth uh, deserves this place, since it establishes the same panorama that I have already explained for the Necromancer. But in a more impressive explosion, it reveals the beginning of the best times of Rush, in an acoustic piece of more than 19 minutes, the most impressive feature of progressive rock. Xanadu Quite a piece at the beginning with improvisations that slowly fit in with the magical atmosphere exposed by the title, which give way to the great theme Xanadu, a total journey through a country where fantasy unfolds in the simple verses sung by Getty Lee, with changes sudden but well digestible, eye-catching and monumental. This is the theme that encompasses one of the best live performances of the band. If you want, you can search the images of the moments when the song was presented in concerts and you will be impressed by the performances they carried, they carried out. Even with the great feature of their old past, playing heavy rock, you can enjoy the entire song without losing yourself in the rambling of the unexpected. Limelight This song works particularly well in this case. Rush explained in Limelight that living under the spotlight was a difficult thing that they did not particularly enjoy and preferred to appreciate their privacy. 
Pert's terrible brain cancer surprise is certainly a sign of it. Tom Sawyer. Great song, the most transcendental and popular in the entire history of the band. A song that you may already know, but you never imagined who would be the would be the group that plays, either because this was the most played piece on the radio, or to mark the new era of Rush before its irrepressible decline. This song is al is almost always seen as the best of the entire band. But in my opinion, there are three others that give the best view of what is the best of Rush, but not the best. I can leave behind, honestly, if it is a very good song, registered with everything necessary to, ma to mark a new era of progressive rock. Working Man. Time to see the best of the best. And, what's better way to, and what better way to start this countdown than with Working Man, found on the band's debut album, is in this one where they decide to say everything on their own. Cygnus X1 Book 2 Hemispheres Along with all of that this song is, separated into two parts, one already mentioned before, Cygnus X1 Book 1 The Voyage, Hemispheres can be heard as the total evolution and musical maturation that Rush pro, uh, possessed in its good times, with an explosive beginning and a relaxed ending that leaves you speechless, speaking to a great astral and cosmic philosophy that transcends deep into the galaxies. This theme rightfully wins this place that has always been taken by other themes that are they that are they be becoming that they are become more popular, but this undoubtedly. But this is undoubtedly the song that deserves the best recognition from the true fans of the band. 2112 As we arrive at the first place, logical for some, confusing for others, but without a doubt and without fear, I can highlight 2112 as the best composition in the entire history of Rush, not only for being the longest with more than 20 minutes of duration, if not to highlight all the essence known and expected for the entire history of the band, it is the peak work in which in which the the, the choirs are combined uh, are combined with the song the strong guitar solos that evolve and end up to begin again without giving way to a moment of reflection, finished in the best possible way, uh, in which the best song in its history can end with an explosive and rampant moment in which all the tragic lyrics of the subject the entire of the subject enter the reason of all galactic philosophy, such as the suspense that one has before went before what can be an alien invasion of on our planet. Free will. Staying thoughtful, Neil Pert, Alex Lipson, and Getty Lee like to make meaningful music and always remind us that we have a chance to choose. Free will means that if you choose not to decide, you are still making a decision anyway. That was the 20 songs that can represent the career of Rush. Author is still unknown, but this was from rockpasta.com. And date is also unknown. And by the way, the lead singer, Getty Lee, is our Jewish friend. Alright, and now here is something from a site called bestclassicbands.com and this is called Warren Zevon Final Letterman Appearance Enjoy Every Sandwich by Best Classic Band Staff. And the uh, 
date of this uh, little article is also unknown. Many celebrities uh, suffering from terminal illnesses choose for personal reasons to keep their diagnoses to themselves, preferring to live out their final days away from the glare of the media and even the sympathies of their own fans. Few outside of David Bowie's inner circle, for example, even knew he had cancer until the day his death was announced. Warren Zevon chose another route. Months prior to his passing on September 7, 2003, from mesothelioma, a form of cancer that affects the linings of the lungs, the 56-year-old singer-songwriter had disclosed his situation publicly. He even discussed his illness openly on The Late Show with David Letterman, an appearance that was both heartbreaking and, thanks to the artist's humility and grace, heartwarming. The date was October 30, 2002, some two decades after Zevon had first performed for Letterman. In those 20 years, the two men had established a close friendship, with the classic rocker visiting the show on numerous occasions, even subbing for the program's band leader, Paul Schaefer, on occasion. But the 2002 appearance was something special. Zevon didn't just drop by for a quick song and chat. Instead, Letterman devoted the entire hour to his sole guest. Zevon used his time to discuss his mesothelioma honestly, keeping the mood light but holding nothing back. I might have made a tactical error in not going to a physician for 20 years, Zevon said wryly. It's one of those phobias that didn't pay off. And in a quip that has since been quoted countless times, Zevon responded succinctly and with humor to Letterman's question about what his, his experience with cancer has taught him about life and death. How much you're supposed to enjoy every sandwich, he replied. Zevon, born on January 24, 1947, also performed, of course, giving the host and audience three classics from his catalog, Multaneer, Genius, and Roland the Headless Gunner, the last a personal request for Letterman. Zevon avoided the new songs he'd only recently recorded for his final album, The Wind, which would be released just two weeks before his death. The version of Roland, with Zevon backed by Schaefer and the program's house band, is a stunner. It would turn out to be his final public performance, but Zevon, who had been given a few months to live, managed to buck the odds and survive for nearly another year, sticking around long enough to experience the birth of his twin grandsons. Five years after the Zevon farewell, Letterman recalled the night for Rolling Stone. Off the air, afterwards, Letterman went to see Zevon in his dressing room. As we're talking, he's taking his guitar strap and hooking it, wrapping it around. Then he puts the guitar into the case, and he flips the snaps on the case and says, Here, I want you to have this. Take good care of it. And I just started sobbing. He was giving me the guitar that he always used on the show. I felt like I can't be in this movie. I didn't get my lines. That was very tough. Lennerman was born on April 12, 1947. That was Warren Zevon final Letterman appearance. Enjoy every sandwich by Best Classic Band staff. Date unknown from bestclassicbands.com. All right, now here is a little something from myjewishlearning.com. And this is called The Jewish History of Tootsie Rolls and Other Classic American Candy. Peeps, Tootsie Rolls, Peanut Shoes by Joanna O'Leary. April 15, 2021. Did you know 
that some of America's most popular candies, Tootsie Rolls, Peeps, Peanut Chews, were invented by Jews? How and why this came to pass is a remarkable tale that needs no sugarcoating. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Jewish beet farmers throughout the Russian Empire produced the bulk of the sugar necessary to satisfy the high demand of the European market. When many of these impoverished farmers fled their shtetls at the turn of the 20th century and immigrated to the United States, they leveraged their sugar processing skills to find employment in candy factories. Many went on to open their shops, such as in the case with Morris Moshi Cohen, founder of New York's famous Economy Candy. Cohen, whose primary trade was shoe and hat repair, ran a sweets cart originally as a side job, a side hustle, but found that during the Depression, candy, rather than cobbling, was bringing in more cash. In 1937, Cohen converted his shop into a full-time confectionery selling sweetmeats, dried fruit, nuts, and gift baskets. More than 80 years later, Economy Candy is still run by Cohen's descendants and has become a landmark for its incredibly vast 2,000 items and counting selection of current, vintage, and hard-to-find candies. Having come from an, an esteemed line of candy makers in his native Austria, Leo Hirschfeld simply thought he was carrying on his family legacy when he opened his corner candy store in New York in 1896. But in 1908, he unknowingly permanently made the world a little sweeter upon rolling out one of his own personal invention, a chocolate-flavored chewy cylindrical roll dubbed Tootsie after his pet name for his daughter Clara. A similar sweet success story is that of Romanian immigrant David Seltzer. After setting foot in his new home of Philadelphia, Seltzer made two fortuitous decisions. First, he changed his name to Goldenberg, a variation of Goldberg, which he heard was a good name to have in the United States, thereby relieving himself of a moniker that might have condemned him to a career involving bubbly water. Second, and to seal the deal, he went to work making carnival treats, then eventually transitioned into running his own candy business. One of Goldenberg's most popular creations was a chewy walnut and molasses candy. Later, he swapped walnuts for more cost-effective peanuts, and Goldenberg's peanut chews were born. During the First and Second World Wars, Goldenberg won numerous governmental contracts to produce peanut chews as a nutritious, non-rationed bar for American soldiers. The flourishing family business was passed on to Goldenberg's children, Sylvia and Harry, the latter of which passed it on to his sons, Ed and Carl, the latter of which passed it on to his son, also named David. This great-grandson of the original founder eventually sold the Peanut Chew Empire in 2003 to Just Born Candy Company, which still produces the candy to this day under the Goldenberg name. Jewish-owned and operated Just Born Company was also the catalyst for pioneering another classic confection. In 1953, the candy conglomerate acquired the Rhoda Company, R-O-D-D-A, which at the time devoted the majority of its production capacity to churning out jelly beans, only occasionally dabbling at the significantly more labor-intensive marshmallow treats known as Peeps. After owner Sam Bourne's son, Robert, invented a machine that reduced production time from 27 hours to 6 minutes, the company rapidly became the world's leading manufacturer, ironically noted, of arguably America's most iconic Easter candy. 
What is perhaps most compelling about these bonbon backstories is that Hurstfield, Goldenberg, and others took what many might relegate as culinary juvenilia, candy making, and demonstrated its potential as a form of high art by designing confections that made a lasting impact on the gastroeconomic landscape. In summarizing the American candy tradition, one might riff on the famous Marvin Gaye lyric, How sweet it is and it's made by Jews. And that was The Jewish History of Tootsie Rolls and Other Classic American Candy by Joanna O'Leary from MyJewishLearning.com April 15, 2021 Alright, now let's read some articles from Jewish Journal for October 21st to the 27th, 2022. From the columnist section, this is called The Battle of the Billboards by Kylie Ora Lobel. Every day, when I pick up my daughters from daycare in my Pico Robertson neighborhood, I pass by a tasteless billboard that sits right on top of a yeshiva. On the billboard, a scantily dressed woman is posing in a very suggestive position. She wears scary makeup and piercings all over her body. The billboard is advertising the television show American Horror Story, and she is obviously some kind of sensuous mo- uh, murderer. Mommy, look, my, three, my three-year-old daughter said to me one day after noticing the billboard, Scary Lady. I was hoping my daughter wouldn't see it, but she did. I responded, yes, she is very scary. Don't look. I thought this is Los Angeles, where many of the billboards feature immodestly dressed people for or ads for drugs or casinos or other things that children shouldn't see. I expected that. But this is taking it to a whole new level. The fact that it was on top of a yeshiva, a holy place of learning, where young impressionable boys do misvote all day long, I was appalled. Even though I'm a religious person, I don't think anyone should have to see this billboard, religious or not. I'm sure it scares secular people, too. One time when I was in a very dark place in my life, I tuned into American Horror Story to see what all the fuss was about. I wish I never had. I saw so many disturbing and twisted images that I will never be able to erase from my brain. I'm no prude. I'm married to a stand-up comedian and I've heard lots of revolting jokes from other comedians over the years. People have the right to create any kind of art they want. I don't believe in cancellation. But I also don't think that innocent children or parents uh, driving their kids to school or people going to the office should have to see this. Let those who want to see it out, out for themselves. Let those who want to see it, let those who want it seek it out for themselves. Don't subject, subject all of us to such depravity. This past Sukkot, I was walking with my husband, Daniel, and daughters to our friend's house for a meal. We were about to pass the billboard. Ugh, I whispered, I hope it's not there anymore. Sadly, I could spot the dis- in the distance. Let's turn onto another street uh, before we get to it, I told Daniel. I don't want the girls to see it. But then, I saw something else. What was it? I, it couldn't be. It was the loop of Victor Reppy's wonderful smiling face on, the, on a huge billboard. The text next to him said, Moshiach is here. Just add in goodness and kindness. There was also a line about the Rebbe being Messiah which I don't believe, and I don't think most Habadriks do either. I can put the lines aside and it me- if it means that I'm seeing uh, the Rebbe every day on my way to pick up the kids. Whenever I see a photo of him, I feel his warmth. Going to Chabad, 
Doig Chabad Dirim made me want to convert to Judaism, and Chabadniks bring so much light into this world and are some of my favorite people on earth. The Rebbe billboard reminded me that there is still holiness in the world, and it outweighs the darkness. We don't have to let outside forces come in and try to, to taint the holiness of our beloved neighborhood. We just we have to we have more power than we think. Most people, including non-religious Jews, will have no idea what this billboard means. But maybe they will connect with the message, add in goodness and kindness. Maybe they will Google the Rebbe and learn more about him and become inspired. I know that I certainly have. That was the Battle of the Billboards by Kylie Oralobo from the Columnist section. Kylie Oralobo is the community editor of the Jewish Journal. <clears throat> also from the Jewish Journal, this is called New Life from Death by Melanie Chartoff. On the last day, September Sunday, on the last September Sunday before the heat woke up and took over, the world stayed silent and still to preserve its cool as long as it can. I snuck my feet out of my slippers and stepped into the yard, once dewy green, now parched brown from a show-off sun. No nutrition seeped by osmosis through my soles that morning, no wet welcoming. But I must acclimate. The parched landscape is virtuous. It's no water waster. It declares, it, it declares, this new year, this new autumn, I will flaunt the fashionable emblem of a brown and withering lawn adapting to the new landscape fashion trend in arid <clears throat> California. The beauty of burnt. I but I, I bucket brigade my shower, heat, heat up water, to my necessary plants, to my thirsty herbs, my desiccated uh, citrus trees, and as a luxury to my pouting roses, so shocked that nature's hot shoulder turned away from their flirtations. How cruel to withhold water, to deny their beauty the, uh, the treatment they've counted on for decades. They face the cruel new world drooping, drooping petals. They must adapt or die like the many endangered things around them. I can no longer enable their vanity. It's my shower or theirs this morning. Just about to step into a massive cobweb flaunting in symmetrical perfection in a sunbeam, I stopped to respect the industrious spider who rebuilt this work out of art after I fought my way out of it in this very same spot last week. It unnerved me then, but today I can only admire it. Let it stay for smaller prey. I too cling by my fingernails to thinning veins of familiar fertility, to what's worked before, seeing the strongest pulse I can still feel. The spider must do the same. And then I spy my ancestral aloe, aloe which for many days seemed dead, shedding gray spiked fronds, dwindling to a stub, standing like a stubborn sentry in an aspirational big pot on my back soup. I've given up hope, but now I see the deceased stake bears a spiny green offshoot, alive against all odds. All odds. No water, no hope. Jagged, asymmetrical, not terribly attractive, it pulses with promise that if I splice it right and avoid its thorns, it will provide a healing sap for any burns I will get in this new seasoning of cooking. I couldn't bear to part with its remnants. An early Jewish New Year's gift from a prodigal's uh, cousin on the East Coast, along with her wishes, it would proper at my house at my home on the West and heal any little wounds, as it had our extended family's small injuries for three generations. 
I didn't realize it was healing itself this last week. It's dropping leaves, sealing off the cut, off, cut, sealing off the cup with its own internal gel, as it suddenly sprung this aggressive green leaf out of nowhere. It's alive! I shrieked, texting triple exclamation points to my cousin. Fifty years ago, our mother's bitter estrangement divided us daughters across this their vast burnt bridges of resentments. After my sympathy card at her mother's death last month, my cousin mailed me this optimistic sprig of her aloe vera plant, a peace offering, an olive branch. Our shared great-grandmother had uh, carried the original when she fled Lithuania for America in 1920, hoping its milk would heal family wounds in the New World. Sections were shared with the growing family, but my mother let hers die, emblematic of no more playtimes, no more shared naps, no more hand-me-downs, no more contact with her sister's family for 50 years. My cousin texts that this year we must recruit to celebrate, and I plan to visit her soon. And amidst all the evidence of decay, my heart lifts. A branch of the family will regenerate and heal. That's New Life from Death by Melanie Chartoff from the Columnist section. Melanie Chartoff has acted on Broadway and television. Okay, here's something from the My Turn section. Jews Quiet No More by Shahar Azani. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining high above the, and the streets seemed to, as cheerful as ever. Later that afternoon, my phone rang and on the other side was a friend of mine who was a person of color. I could sense something was wrong. What happened to your voice, I wondered. She took a deep breath and replied, You noticed? I said, Of course, I said. What's up? Clearly, things were not as usual. I attended a training day at our corporate office for senior management titled Inspiring Conversations led by our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Department. As part of the training, we were asked about a leader we admired. One of my colleagues chose to go first and said, She paused for a minute, a tremble in her voice, and then continued, Derek Chauvin, going on to explain that he'd read all about him and how he was incredible and fascinating and just how much he looked up to him for his dedication to public safety and security. A cloud fell over me that very second. Can you imagine? I was speechless. What did the others say? I asked, intrigued. She sighed. All the moderator had to say was, well, that's the first time I've heard that one. The others acted as if nothing had happened. I ran out crying and all I could hear was laughter behind me. My supervisor came out a short while later to bring me my, my bag and offer me the day off. I didn't want a day off. That training was important to me. I wanted my deviant colleague to get the day off and get out of there. I felt a mix of anger, sadness, and rage. Tears kept flowing down my cheeks. I was so upset listening to her, as I suspect any decent person would be, and rightfully so. But this is where I need to confess something. My friend is Jewish, and the name mentioned in her training session, session wasn't Derek Chavon, but rather Adolf Hitler. All the rest is accurate, word for word. Does this change your reaction to what happened? Sadly, the same care and consideration given to addressing the plights of other minority groups are rarely afforded to Jews and Jewish history. It seems as though it is acceptable to belittle and trivialize Jewish issues, including the atrocities of the Holocaust, the moral abyss of humanity. In San Diego, a middle school teacher placed Hitler's portrait alongside inspirational historical leaders such as U.S. Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy 
as well as British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. in his 7th grade classroom were telling a Jewish student that Hitler may have done some bad things, but he also had strong leadership qualities. Cringe-worthy ignorance. Indeed, the colleague who uttered that filthy name is worthy of all condemnation and should be schooled for his ignorance and malice. But even more so, all the others present in the room and the group's moderator are worthy of even more reprimand and condemnation. Philosopher John Stuart Mill delivered an inaugural address at, in 1867 at the University of St. Andrews and stated, Let not any one pacify his conscience by the de delusion that he can't do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. He is not a good man who, without a protest, allows wrong to be committed in his name with the means which he helps to supply because he will not trouble himself to use his mind on the subject. Not only did he not attempt, uh, not only did it, not only did none in attendance utter a word, but making matters worse, they snickered and laughed it away. The moderator himself did the same and chose to look the other way. And this insensitivity transpired under the banner of diversity, equity, and inclusion. What mockery! Especially when it comes to Jews, these terms have come to represent nothing more than a cacophony of hypocrisy and lip service. I felt repulsed, threatened, scared, and led let down by my company, my friend told me. Some of my relatives perished in the Holocaust, not to mention the many other millions who lost their lives because of that creature. I'm unsure what my company will do about it, or if they will just want me to return to work as if nothing happened and sweep it all under the rug. But I'm not going to stay quiet, and they will be hearing from me, she concluded. They will be hearing from me. Despite the disturbing nature of the issue at hand, my friend's response is encouraging. Jews are no longer content to sit back and allow our history and suffering to be diminished. And I know that my friend is not alone. What is clear is this. The age of quiet Jews is over. That was Jews Quiet No More by Shahar Azani from my, the My Turn section. Shahar Azani is a former Israeli diplomat and senior vice president at JBS. Alright, here's something else from My Turn. This is called Cutting Through the Noise of Israel's Election by Samuel Hyde. When we speak of the upcoming Israeli elections, we are, <clears throat> we are more often than not talking about the personal future of several dozen candidates and the personal fate of one, Benjamin Netanyahu. The fight over Bibi Ye or Bibi Ne has tainted much of the discourse to the point of rendering policy discussions meaningless. Where we are, is, where we are at is simple. Netanyahu supporters believe there is no future without him, and his opponents believe that there is no future with him. As it stands, the Netanyahu bloc is unified, totally tight, unbridled, and completely unrestrained. They have their back against the wall, and their leader Bibi is determined by any means necessary on returning to the premiership. The change bloc represents a collection of rival parties from the center to the left to Arab parties <clears throat> and even those that represent the anti-Netanyahu right. Unlike in the Netanyahu bloc, not all the parties are united behind its leader, Yad Lapid, and few share a, uni a unified vision of the state. What solidifies them is their mutual agreement that a Netanyahu reign must be prevented. 
But the one question on everyone's mind is whether Netanyahu's recent alliance with the far right is part of an electoral strategy or whether the extreme nationalist ideas he has recently embraced are truly what Netanyahu represents going forward. Bibi, the talented statesman who has brought Ehud Barak into his government, plus Moshe Ya'alan, Benny Begin, and Dan Meridor into Likud, has now formed an alliance with Etamar Ben Givar, Bezalel Smotrit, and Rabbi Zivi Tao from the, uh, the neither regions from the nether regions of the extremist right. While it while seen as a marginal figure for much of his political career, Etamar Ben Givar is the leader the leader of the Atzma Yehudite party has received Netanyahu's kosher stamp of approval for the November 1st elections. The move gained him a rise in support among the mainstream right, and he now aims to become a minister in a possible future Netanyahu-led government. Ben Givor is a disciple of Meir Kahane and a product of the once-designated terrorist group Kahane Kai. He first came to the public's attention when he incited the crowd from a balcony in Zion Square brandishing the hood ornament from the car of then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, promising, just as we got to Yitzhak Rabin's car, we'll get to him too. This was just two weeks before Rabin's assassination. Today, Ben Givar is walking a thin line, claiming to be a changed man, careful not to give the Knesset Central Election Committee any reason to disqualify him from running. He made sure to tell the media that he has removed Baruch Goldstein's picture off his wall, a mass murderer he once celebrated, and that he no longer shares Kahane's ideas. The fact that the party's two previous leaders, Baruch Marzel and Michael Ben-Ari, left Atzman Yehudai in protest of Ben-Giver's new style of play has perfectly cemented his narrative, that he is indeed a changed man, and many have cho chosen to believe him. This is where he is correct. Things have changed. He has repackaged himself as a family-friendly version of Kahanism. He has become an expert of the dog whistle, alluding to his goals without explicitly stating, stating them like in the, in the past. It is perhaps this reason that many see him as a far more dangerous than his radical predecessors he claims to have abandoned. In an effort to further cement his electoral victory, Netanyahu brokered a deal between Ben Givor and another far-right leader, Bezalel Smotrich to ensure they run together. If they hadn't, Smotrich might not have made it into the Knesset, depriving Netanyahu of a critical source of support. The Smotrich Ben Givor alliance isn't new. They ran on a shared ticket in the 2021 election, but negotiations to once again submit a joint electoral list collapsed with Ben Givor accusing Smotrich of negotiating in bad faith. Despite these quarrels, a higher, version, a higher vision unites the two, and yet Netanyahu knew precisely what buttons to push to get the band back together. The final link in the chain is Netanyahu's alliance with Rabbi Tao, the known party spiritual leader. Bringing Tao into this fold when, with Ben Giver and Smotrich was executed to prevent the possible loss to the bloc of a faction of a Knesset seat. This move symbolized to many uh, Israelis the com completion, uh, completion of the dramatic change that Likud chairman has undergone in recent years. Noam is a, is a benighted party 
that views women as second-class citizens and promotes conversion therapy to, for homosexuality. Here is a small and charming text from the pen of Rabbi Tao, which appears in the Courage for Independence concerning secular Jews. They are trying to destroy family life, to grant legitimacy to adultery and incest and single-parent families. Bestiality, too, is on the agenda and voices have begun to be, to be heard declaring that pedophilia is normal. They are trying to depict all this ugliness as a paradise on earth. It cannot be ignored that as part of Netanyahu's struggle for a return to power, he has chosen to ride the waves of hatred to reappointment. He has dipped his hands in mo the most malodorous fringes in all of Israeli society in the deepest pools of Kahanism, Messianic nationalism, and for dessert, homophobia too. In the not-too-distant past, people such as these disgusted Netanyahu, but as a means to garner seats, they have now become essential figures for his, count his courtship. One would think that Netanyahu's antics would espouse a backlash from the liberal-minded Prime Minister Yair Lapid, but on the contrary. Lapid is not engaging in the dramatic pathos of the Bibier-Bibinet crowd. Instead, he has chosen to focus on his day job as prime minister. This has garnered criticism from some political insiders who say, look at Netanyahu, he's already done all the groundwork, forcing the various factions to merge. He has ensured that his block of parties is running in only four slates, all of which are guaranteed to pass the electoral threshold. But this is where they are wrong. The absence of Yesh Atid representatives in the television studios and the paucity of uh, advertising online is not an oversight or the result of complacency. Over the last few weeks, it has become clear that Lapid is betting that Israeli, the Israeli election on one idea, that more than anything else, Israelis want normal, quiet, and responsible leadership. It's a calculated gamble based on the premise that most Israelis are exhausted from endless elections. Therefore, Lapid has spent his time negotiating the maritime border with the U.S. and Lebanon, addressing the United Nations General Assembly, re-establishing relations with Turkey, and cementing the historic Straits Agreement with the Saudis. He recently reignited the EU-Israel Association Council, where a high-profile meeting between European foreign ministers and Israel reconvened for the first time in a decade. Lapid's plan has been to spend as much time, as much of the four months he has between Bennett's departure and the election just being prime minister and trying to strike a careful balance between being prominent enough not to avoid notice while not getting stuck in the voter's face. So the thinking goes, each day he does this successfully is more valuable than a day of campaigning against Netanyahu. But in the past few weeks, Lapid has, has encountered difficulties in the change block. To his right is Benny Gantz, who claims he is the only one who can form a government, and to his left is Merav Makeli, whose entire raison of Diatri is trying to restore labor to the days of old. One should grant McKaylee credit where credit is due. She has, in some ways, brought labor back from the dead. However, her stubborn refusal to undertake Lapid's plea to join an electoral slate with Meretz as a tactical block to ensure both parties comfortably cross the threshold might be foolish. 
Such a move doesn't fit with McKelly's aspirations of one day being taken seriously as a prime ministerial candidate. Therefore, Lapid's efforts to unite the two were met with rejection. If both parties cross the threshold and Labour sees a rise in seats, McKaylee will be dubbed a strategic playmaker, worthy of praise and capable of delivering upon calculated risks. If the gamble fails, however, forgiveness won't come easy, and the left will more likely than not demand that she see herself out the door. It's no exaggeration to say that Arab voters will decide whether Netanyahu makes it back into office or remains in the opposition. A high turnout in the Arab community will mean that unless some of the smaller parties of the anti-Netanyahu bloc fail to cross the 3.25% electoral threshold, a Knesset majority will elude the Netanyahu bloc. As things stand, it is likely that neither bloc will manage to win the 61 Knesset seats needed to form a viable government. One possibility being noticed is a rotation government comprising of Likud headed by Netanyahu, the National Unity Party formed by Ben Gantz and Gideon Sa'ar, and the ultra-Orthodox parties. But this time, Gantz would be the first to enter the Prime Minister's office. After all, one doesn't fall into the same trap twice. This works for Netanyahu because this government is his only chance to survive politically. Despite enjoying strong support and an enthusiastic base, even Netanyahu himself is preoccupied with the question of how long his Likud party loyalists and his ultra-Orthodox allies will keep rallying him. A government like the one described above is also the only chance for the ultra-Orthodox parties. The last time they were dragged from, an election, from election to election, they were at least inside the government and enjoying all its perks. But today, they have been cast aside on the opposition benches angry and forlorn. Thus, Netanyahu and the ultra-Orthodox have a reasonably clear interest in forming such a government. Quite aside from political calculations, Netanyahu actually prefers Gantz to Etamar Ben-Givor, the Kahatanist balloon that is gradually inflating alongside him and for which he is to blame. Like many others whom Netanyahu has nurtured for his own gain, he knows that Ben-Givor will soon sooner or later, turn on him and cause him damage. Gantz's campaign behavior, in some ways, also supports the theory that he has spent a considerable amount of time cozying up to the ultra-Orthodox parties, with whom Netanyahu cannot win without and who he would require good relations with in the event of such an outcome. Gantz, like Lapid and Makeli, the, uh, the understands that the dangers of Netanyahu's coming to power with his extremist alliance could be severe. Therefore, many believe the deal he would strike with primarily be based on one condition. Netanyahu must break his promise to the ben Kivur smotrich alliance in exchange for his partnership. This move may be the only way to keep these extremists from holding significant positions of power should Netanyahu arise victoriously. Such a move has personal gain for Gantz as well. In making this play, he assumes the role of savior. To the one side, the pro-Netanyahu folk would have their king anointed once more, and to the other side, he would be the man responsible for keeping the far right on the fringes where they belong. Perhaps this is where the answer lies uh, to the initial question as to whether Netanyahu's electoral strategy with the far right is simply that a strategy to strike a deal with a savior 
from the opposing side, a deal he would otherwise not be able to leverage or if he truly has become a cat's paw for Kahatana's thought. Gantz and Sa'ar still adamantly claim that they will not sit in a government with Netanyahu, and there are reasonable grounds to believe them. Gantz has an enormous grudge against Netanyahu, who hurt him and his family through the despicable campaigns he ran back when Gantz's Kahu Lavan party was a threat. And it's frightening even to think even about the deep, boundless enmity between Netanyahu and Za'ar. But the possibility of a Netanyahu-Gantz coalition still can't be ruled out. After all, in the March 2020 elections, Gantz entered into such a partnership with Netanyahu despite an explicit campaign pledge not to. In Israeli politics, and especially over the last few chaotic years, we've already learned that promises are often meant to be announced with the grandiosity before an election, only to prove after the election to have been an inflated performance that was right at the time, but now the good of the nation requires X or Y. Time will tell. That was Cutting Through the Noise of Israel's Election by Samuel Hyde from the My Turn section. Samuel Hyde is a writer-researcher at the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance based in Tel Aviv, Israel. He is the editor of the book We Should All Be Zionists by Dr. Enad Wilf and is currently co-writing a second book with Wilf titled Political Intelligence. Right, here's something else from the My Turn section. While Iranian women are fighting and dying for their freedom, where are the women's groups? By Jessica Emami. What is our obligation to act when a brave few put their lives at risk standing up to tyranny? On September 16, 2022, a courageous group of Iranian women took to the streets outraged over the Iranian morality police's killing of 22-year-old Masha Amini for the crime of wearing her hijab too loosely. Since then, the authorities have killed hundreds of people, yet the protests have expanded throughout, the, throughout Iran and beyond, and they show no signs of abating. All these brave Iranians know full well the potential dangers their actions pose to them and especially to those still living in Iran, but they are persisting in their calls for freedom. Scores of European and Middle Eastern entertainers, politicians, and governments, including Israel, have publicly declared their support. But after nearly a month of protests, the leading U.S. women's organizations and public figures have been surprisingly slow to respond. Could it be that the American women leaders are shying away from forcefully condemning the Iranian Malila's uh, heinous crimes out of fear of being branded Islamophobic? If so, let's be honest about the obvious. If we truly care for justice, our obligations are clear. American women must immediately support the Iranian struggle against women's oppression, forcefully and unapologetically. It's too early to say if Iran is at a tipping point, but there will be no change in Iran if U.S. leaders do not join in a unified voice to support the demonstrators. There is clear precedent, indeed many would say a religious duty for us to step up when a brave few confront injustice. We, we need look no further than Queen Esther's defense of the Persian Jewish community of her time. But what if the struggle is internal to another sovereign state? Here too is the abundant precedent for us to act. Take Natan Sharansky's fight against Soviet oppression of Jewish refuseniks. In the early 1970s, Sharansky was put on trial for the simple act of applying to emigrate to Israel.
He responded by speaking out against Soviet oppression and was soon imprisoned on a trumped-up charge of spying. Sharansky's courage sparked a global movement and U.S.-Soviet negotiations for his release became a linchpin for the Soviets' eventual dissolution. The uprising uh, now underway in support of Iranian women's rights is, is a Sharansky movement. Life for women in Iran is unbearable. They are monitored in their every movement by Iran's powerful facial recognition technology and they are subjected to medieval rules. They may not work, marry, divorce, travel, or even apply for a passport, much less leave Iran to escape their persecution without a man's permission. And they, and they can be married off as young as age nine. What will it take for America to heed the call of the Iranian women for the world's health? How do we get our leaders to understand the gravity of this moment? The Iranian regime is a pariah state. For over four decades, it has wreaked havoc in the world, instigating terrorism, armed conflict, refugee crises, and nuclear and hostage blackmail. We cannot overlook that Iran's authority over its own people is precisely how the mullahs preserve their power to destabilize the world. The Iranian regime's unfathomable brutality on, wim on women on their day-to-day -day lives must not be met by silence moral equivalencies, and conditional support. Our complacency only endangers the Iranians who are now risking their lives in defense of freedom and enables the regime to continue cooping uh, uh, the language of human rights for their own purposes. Thus, this cause should be a matter of the highest priority for those who believe in justice. We must urge our leaders, especially our women leaders, to find m the moral clarity and courage of Natan Sharansky, who so aptly stated that a regime that spends the people's money on conflicts and suppression needs only the smallest spark of freedom to set its entire totalitarian world ablaze. Think about it. Wouldn't it be powerful if Hadassah, now Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, Sheryl, Landberg, Sheryl, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, and countless other women in leadership positions, started a vocal national campaign in support of the Iranian women's fight for freedom. Let's ensure the spark that has been ignited by the women of Iran by, uh, uh, that brings about the justice that is so overdue. That was while Iranian women are fighting and dying for their freedom, where are the women's groups? By uh, Jessica Imami. From the My Turn section, Jessica Imami, Ph.D., is an adjunct professor of sociology at American University and an expert on Iranian and Middle Eastern human rights issues. Okay, we go now to the Nation World Briefs section. And uh, we start off with this one. Kanye says Jews have owned the black voice by Aaron Bandler. The rapper formerly known as Kanye West said that Jews have owned the black voice during an October 16 appearance on the Drink Champs podcast. West was come under fire for saying that he was going to go DEFCON 3 against the Jews, uh, said during the podcast that American Apparel refused to manufacture West's White Lives Matter t-shirt because the head of the company is Jewish. Jewish people have owned the black voice, West said via the Jerusalem Post. Whether it's through us wearing the Ralph Lauren shirt, or it's all of us being signed to a record label, or having a Jewish manager, or being signed to a Jewish basketball team, or doing a movie on a Jewish platform like Disney, 
West also blamed Jewish Zionists for publicizing the fact that Kim Kardashian, his ex-wife, and her then-boyfriend Pete Davidson engaged in sexual intercourse by a fireplace, saying that Jewish Zionists are about that life. That's telling that this Christian woman that has four black children to put that out as a message in the media, he said. Additionally, West rebuffed an invitation from the Los Angeles Holocaust Museum, saying that instead people should visit Planned Parenthood, which he called our Holocaust Museum, per Haaretz. Uh, the American Jewish Committee tweeted, Besides the comments themselves, the problem with Kanye's open anti-Semitism is the fact that these people are and platforms continue to give him the chance to spew hatred. That was Kanye Says Jews Have Owned the Black Voice by Aaron Bandler. This is called Trump Says Evangelicals Are More Appreciative of His Israel Policies Than American Jews by Aaron Bandler. Former President Donald Trump wrote in a post on a social media platform, Truth Social, that evangelical Christians have been more appreciative of the Trump administration's Israel policies than American Jews. The post stated, No president has done more for Israel than I have. Somewhat surprisingly, however, our wonderful evangelicals are far more appreciative of this than the people of the Jewish faith, especially those living in the U.S. Trump then noted that his approval ratings in Israel are among the highest in the world, adding U.S. Jews have to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it's too late. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt tweeted, We don't need the former president who curries favor with extremists and anti-Semites to lecture us about the U.S.-Israel relationship. It's not about a quid pro quo. It rests on shared values and insecurity and security interests. This Jews planning is, an ins is insulting and disgusting. That was Trump says evangelicals are more appreciative of his Israel policies than American Jews by Aaron Bandler. And this last one is called Long Island's New Jewish History Museum Means Business by Lauren Hakimi, New York Jewish Week. In the 1920s, when a disease hit Long Island cucumbers, Joseph and Kate Rothman of East uh, Northport in Suffolk County realized that their pickling business needed to pivot in order to survive. Just what do you do when you have a huge, huge vats of, of rind but no cucumbers to put inside. In the Rothman's case, they turned to cabbage. Thus, Kate's sauerkraut was born. The Rothman story is one of many told in a new exhibit at the Holocaust Memorial Intolerance Center in Nassau County's Glen Cove. The exhibit, Earning a Living 300 Years of Jewish Businesses on Long Island, which opened last Monday, focuses on the early history of Jewish businesses on the island from farmers to peddlers to even a bootlegger who manufactured his own alcohol during the Prohibition era. Earning a Living also marks the debut of the Long Island Jewish History Museum, a project of the newly formed Long Island Jewish Historical Society. It aims to be the first ever institution dedicated to the history of the Jews of, the Jews of Suffolk and Nassau counties. There has essentially been no significant deep divide into Long Island Jewish history ever. Brad Kaladini, the exhibit's curator and president of the Long Island Jewish Historical Society, told the New York Jewish Week. One of the reasons why Long Island Jewish history has been overlooked is because Long Island is somewhat an outgrowth of New York City. That was Long Island's new Jewish History Museum means business by Lauren Hakimi of the New York Jewish Week, and those are all from the Nation World Briefs section.
Once again, we go to the My Turn section. This is called Herzl's Defining Vision Alt Newland, Old Newland by Gil Troy. Editor's Note. Exerted from the new three-volume set Theodore Herzl, Zionist Writings, edited by Gil Troy, the inaugural publication of the Library of the Jewish People to be published this August, mark, marking the 125th anniversary of the First Zionist Congress. This is ninth in a series. Amid all of Theodore Herzl's personal, professional, and movement tensions, this remarkable, resilient man was deep in the writing of his utopian novel, Altenuland, Old Newland, which he, which he published in 1902. Dear Judenstadt was one of a series of 19th century nationalist manifestos asserting claims to various homelands. Alt Newland was unique. Herzl's biographer Shlomo Avinery explains because it was not just about Jews having a right, but also about Jews making the right kind of state. The novel was progressive and prescient. It envisioned equal rights and dignity for women and for Arabs whose ties to the land Herzl respected. It anticipated some of modern Israel's tensions pitting secular versus religious Jews and non-Jews versus Jews. Most important, Alt Newland provides a vivid, if romantic, vision of what a Jewish state would be reassured uh, Jews that a Jewish state could be. The novel's Hebrew translation captured Herzl's alluring mix of romanticism and pragmatism, of dreaming and problem-solving. The Zionist intellectual and translator Nahum Sokolow rendered the title poetically as Tel Aviv, the ancient rubbled hill of spring. A tell is an artificial mount built, from, built up from archaeological relics and ruins, where the phrase comes from that of the most redemptive book of the Bible, Ezekiel 3.15. Seven years later, in 1909, the first city, Tel Aviv, sprang up from the sand dunes just north of the ancient Jaffa port where Herzl had landed. For a newly crowned king of the Jews, who knew little about Jews, Herzl did a masterful job of keeping the Zionist movement together. He usually harmonized his desperate diplomatic, organizational, and ideological initiatives, while carving a reasonable consensus around most issues. Alas, what might have been at his greatest diplomatic breakthrough almost broke the movement. Joseph Chamberlain, the Secretary of State for the Colonies of the United Kingdom, was as properly dressed as Herzl and with a monocle to boot. As a liberal sympathetic to the Jewish plight and an imperialist happy to keep Britain dominating the international arena, he was open to Herzl's proposed proposal in 1902 for a temporary Jewish home in Cyprus or El Arish. Consultation with the Cypriots and Egyptians redirected Chamberlain. When they met again in 1903, the colonial secretary offered Herzl 13,000 square kilometers at Uwasan Gishu and the East African Proctorate, today's Kenya. Somehow christened the Uganda Plan, it gained momentum after April 1903, when anti-Semites rampaged in Kishnev for two endless days, beating, raping, and murdering Jews. Coming six years into Herzl's crusade, th these Kishnev pogroms validated his Zionist uh, project, reinforcing his happy conclusion that the Jews were one people, with nerve endings overlapping and uniting them, and his unhappy conclusion that the Jews had no home in Europe. 
desperate for an immediate solution, seeing dark clouds over Europe, most Jews denied, Herzl presented the British offer at the Zionist Congress in August of 1903 and almost destroyed the movement he had sweated so hard to build. Max Nordau would call the idea a Nachtassel, our refuge in the night. Menachem Ustishkin, who had been the secretary of the first Zionist Congress, was one of many Russian Zionists who felt the proposal repudiated the Zionist idea. If Herzl pursued such fo uh, folly, Ustishkin and others threatened to organize an independent Zionist organization without Dr. Herzl. Equally indignant, Herzl mocked the descendants as typical hacks. For the first thing they acquire are all the bad qualities of the professional politicians, showing his imperious side. He threatened, showing his imperious side, he threatened to mobilize the masses of the lower class, then cut off their funds. This time, the masses abandoned Herzl. There was good news hidden in the bad news that from that volatile, venomous, angry, anxious Congress. The British government was treating the Zionist organization and its leader, Theodore Herzl, seriously, marking a milestone in Jewish history. And when people take a young institution seriously enough to walk out of it, if it survives, it proves it is alive. Even a subsequent assassination attempt by a Uganda opponent on Max Nordau's life confirmed Zionism's growing relevance. It does show love for an idea, the wise Italian king Victor Emmanuel III, whose own father was shot dead in 1900, told Herzl. As one alt-new nationalist to another, the king said, I'd like this love for Jerusalem. The Sixth Zionist Congress voted 295 to 178 in Basel to explore the proposal. Nevertheless, the initiative's formal defeat two years later would settle it. Zionism was about uh, settling in Zion, nowhere else. It was a Jewish homecoming, not a spin-off of the European colonial adventure. Herzl also enjoyed some diplomatic success with Russia's interior minister, Count uh, Wenduzel von Plehev. This Jew hater was open to schemes that might rid his country of the Jews. Herzl was realistic enough to focus on results and ignore motives. In retrospect, this recognition from Russian officials followed by meetings in January 1904 with King Victor Emmanuel III and Pope Pius X legitimized the movement and cemented Herzl's legacy. Herzl kept trying to finalize a deal with the Ottoman Empire, sensing the sick man of Europe's weakness, but multiple contacts and interna interactions never resulted in anything concrete. With each passing year, Herzl realized that Zionism was about reinvigorating Jewish identity and resolving many human dilemmas, not just solving the Jewish problem. Zionism is a return to Jewishness even before there is a return to the Jewish land, he explained. Herzl's ideological journey, which tens of millions of Jews have now replaced, uh, have replicated, proved that the quest for a Jewish normalcy is chemical. Zionism does does not work as a de-Judaized movement or a movement lacking big ideas or transform transformational values. It is as futile as trying to cap a geyser. Jewish civilization's intellectual, ideological, and spiritual energy is too great. That was Herzl's defining vision, Alt Newland, Old Newland, by Gil Troy, from the My Turn section. Professor Gil Troy is the author of the Zionist Ideas and the editor of the three-volume set, 
Theodore Herzl's Zionist Writings, the inaugural publication of the Library of the Jewish People, to be published this August, marking the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress. Alright, and now we go to Rosner's Domain from Israel. Ten days, time to prepare for Israel's election by Shemuel Rosner. As much as we dislike politics, and five rounds of elections in Israel give us many reasons to dislike politics, or merely hope for a brief respite from having to think about politics, election day is ten days away. Thus, I have no choice but to meet my obligation as political editor and propose a few pointers for the coming days. In other words, if you're interested in Israel's future, what are the trends that you need to know following uh, that you need to follow until November 1st when Israel goes to the polls. Any signs of change? This has been the most stati static election season in Israel's history. As far as we can judge, polls weren't available in the early days of the state. Simply put, this means that any hint that people are dedicating deciding to switch from their current choice to a different choice of party could make a real difference. Even more important, in fact, a much more important sign will be a decision by anyone to switch to the other bloc. We used to think about Israeli elections as a parliamentary contest between many parties, but this cycle is a contest between uh, two blocs with almost no movement from one side to the other. For many weeks, most parties remained stable and the blocs remained solid. A tie or, a, or close to a tie, meaning no one with the ability to form a coalition, was the result of almost all polls. Arab Intended Participation The share of Arab Israelis intended to vote in the coming uh, election is low. If Arabs do not vote, the Jews get a higher share of the vote, and most Jews are right of center. In other words, a key for the center-left bloc to prevent a Likud-led right-wing coalition is to somehow convince Arab voters that they have a stake in preventing such an outcome. The flip side of the same coin is for Netanyahu not to give Arab voters a reason to change their minds and suddenly decide to vote. Arab representation The Arab voters are important because they will be crucial in determining the outcome of the election. But there is another important feature. Of the, uh, another important feature of their participation that, uh, that must be taken into account. Currently, the two parties closest to the electoral threshold are Arab parties, Hadash, Ta'al, and Ra'am. This means that even a slight slip further down the participation scale could mean no Arab representation in the next Knesset. Repeat, more than 20% of Israel's voters will have no representatives in the next parliament. And don't blame the Jews for such outcome. If Arab voters decide not to vote, they cannot expect representation. Likud voters' enthusiasm In recent rounds, Likud voters did not attend the polls in great numbers. Some of them were cocky and believed that Netanyahu is going to win without them. Some of them got tired of voting time and time again without getting clear results, and some might have tired of Likud, but do not have, but do not have the stomach to vote for any other party. Either way, Netanyahu needs them, all of them, to upset the shrinking number of parties who would accept him as a leader of a coalition. Can they get out the vote? Here's the tricky part of it. He needs to awaken them without using the means that would also arouse the Arab voters. That is, without crying, the Arabs are coming. A Jewish Home Dilemma Ayelet Shakid and the Jewish Home Party are a thorn at Netanyahu's side. 
He wants her to quit, but she insists on running. He wants her voters to abandon her, but about 2% remain. This could mean a loss of 2 to 3 seats, the crucial seats. Thus, he will have to decide sooner rather than later whether to risk these votes by an even more aggressive attempt to bury Shakid, or risk them by, uh, by calling on people to vote for her in an attempt to lift her party above the electoral threshold. In both cases, there's no guarantee of success. Unrest in the West Bank A rise in violent attacks in the West Bank and Jerusalem in the last few weeks could alter the course of the election in more than one way. They could impact the fervor of the right. They could influence the decision of Arab voters. They could raise the temperature of this election to a higher level. Yar Lapid as prime minister is the man in charge. Any mistakes when violence occurs on his watch could cost him the election. On the other hand, when reality, rather than empty rhetoric, is the main feature of public discourse, the PM has an edge, as he is the one who gets to make decisions and dominate the agenda. That was 10 Days Time to Prepare for Israel's Election by Shmuel Rosner from Rosner's Domain from Israel. Shmuel Rosner is Senior Political Editor. For more analysis of Israel, Israeli and international politics, visit Rosner's Domain at jewishjournal.com slash Rosner's Domain. Alright, here's something called First, a poem for Parsha Bereshit, Aliyah 5 by Rick Lupert. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who grasp a lyre and a flute. Genesis 4.21 Fresh out of the garden and our first children who never knew what it's like to be without clothes are doing the first of everything. Jubal takes up the lyre and the flute and becomes the precursor for any of us who hold up our guitars in front of the people to lead them spiritually from one place to the other. Forget about the fact that Judaism technically hasn't uh, been invented yet. We're on a roll, coming up with names for things. The first people to have tents, the first people to have cows, the first people to, ha to sharpen tools. It's not a race, this life. Your end goal should, be, should not be the end. This is the secret to immortality, by the way, but acknowledging our firsts, where we came from, and why we do what we do the way we do it uh, or why we sometimes stray from the path with appropriate reverence is the stuff civilizations are based on. The next time I pick up my guitar to sing the oldest or newest melody, it's for Jubal. If it weren't for him, I might never have gone back to summer camp, and who knows what I'd be doing with my fingers. That's first, a poem for Parsha Bereshit Aliyah 5 by Rick Lupert. Rick Lupert, a poet, song leader, and graphic designer, is the author of 26 books, including God Wrestler, a poem for every Torah portion. Let's close with some ads from Jewish Journal for uh, October 21st to the 27th, 2022. In these turbulent times, who do you trust? The Foundation, Jewish Community Foundation, Los Angeles. Someone who sees your charitable fund as something other than a source of profits a reliable partner to help guide you through strategic charitable giving, someone who understands the charitable implications of the tax laws and can explain them clearly. Our name tells our story. We're the Jewish Community Foundation of Los Angeles and we exist to better our community. We're managed by people like you. We have over $1.5 billion of assets and 1,400 plus donor families. 
We've been helping our donors create tax-effective charitable funds and give more strategically uh, for nearly 70 years. Talk to someone who has worked with us. Read about the remarkable work our donors are accomplishing with the charitable funds we're helping them create and manage. It's admirable to give to, to give charity. It's more effective when you when you add trusted good advice. Website is JewishFoundationLA.org. Phone is 323-761-8701. Email is info at JewishFoundationLA.org. Here's something. Find your inner peace. Welcome to Friday Light, a campaign encouraging Jewish women and girls to illuminate the world with the light of Shabbat. By observing this special tradition each and every Friday night, you will not only bask in a personal moment of inner peace, but also connect to a global community of Jewish women who together hold the power to bring light to the world. Join us, won't you? FridayLight.org Visit FridayLight.org to get candle lighting times for your location, share your feelings, invite a friend to join, and more. Here's one. Independent living, assisted living, memory care. Curated amenities, enriching programs, and customized care. The Watermark at Westwood Village, a modern community for seniors on LA's west side, offers luxury residences for independent living, assisted living, and memory care. Here, an extraordinary lifestyle awaits with gourmet dining, an on-site salon and spa, engaging programming, and expert care. It's the perfect California lifestyle. Call 310-893-5423 to schedule your private tour and experience our award-winning senior living community. The Watermark at Westwood Village, Elon Collection. Website is watermarkwestwood.com. Uh, address is 947 Tiverton Avenue in LA, 90024. RCFE number 19832127. Here's one. Healthy smiles start here. Orthodox for children, orthodontics for children and adults. Metal braces, clear braces, Invisalign, lingual braces. Tally F. Elfersi, DDS. MS board certified orthodontist call for a complimentary consultation 8500 Wilshire Boulevard uh, number 818 in Beverly Hills 90211 bonus 323-761-0731 email is office at alpharrtho.com uh, 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 and website is www.alpharrtho.com fsotho.com and network with most denter plans. Dr. Parle Francais. Okay. And we go to the Jewish Journal Marketplace section. As always, to reserve your marketplace ad space, call 213-368-1661 and add and space reservation and add material deadlines are 12 p.m. Thursdays. You go to this Mount Sinai Memorial Park, Hollywood Hills. Two double deaf plots in sold out location of Garden of Blessings, map 4, not, lot 1311, space 2, A and B. Asking price $42,000, transfer and endowment included. Call 213-200-3821. And here's one Hillside Memorial Park, one plot for sale in Court of Judges downstairs. Sold out location and easy access. Hills, Hillside price 
$10,085, asking price $9,500. Includes transfer via an endowment. Call 818-486-7633. Here's another. Mount Sinai Hollywood Hills single plot for sale in sold-out level location in Gardens of Ramah, Map E, Lot 6411, Space 3A, asking price $18,500, includes endowment and transfer uh, fee, Sinai price $20,000. Call 818-882-2300. Uh, email is uh, urielrossop at yahoo.com. And folks, that will just about do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.